morning. My name is Carolyn Baum. I'm with Bloomberg News. Um, welcome to panel two. Mention the words free banking, and the first thing that comes to my mind is the ability to get money out of another bank's cash machine without paying a fee. Jim Dorn is probably wondering why he asked me to moderate this panel. Anyway, uh, clearly the gentlemen up here uh, uh, have something else in mind when they talk about free banking. You know, whether it is a gold standard, another kind of commodity standard, a currency board, uh, a system of free banking, competitive currencies. Uh, the panelist, uh, panelist uh, next to me will argue today that uh, any of these systems uh, would have uh, prevented this uh, chronic boom-bust cycle that we seem to find ourselves in. Um, I sort of like the, the bill pool uh, less is more introducing the panel uh, uh, system. You can all read about them. Um, I think we will uh, begin with Steve Hankey, who is Professor of Applied Economics uh, at, at uh, Johns Hopkins University. We, we call it Bloomberg U around the, uh, the office. And uh, let me just introduce the rest of the panelists. Um, next to... Um, Next to Steve is George Tavlis, uh, Director General of the Bank of Greece. To my right is Lawrence White of uh, George Mason University. And uh, Kevin Dowd of the, uh, Ka the Cass Business School's Pensions Institute, City University London. And he would like me to mention that he has a co-author on his paper, Martin Hutchinson, who blogs at the Bear's Lair. So without further ado, um, Steve Hankey, please. Thank you, Carolyn. It is Bloomberg U, by the way. Uh, Mike Bloomberg, a, a graduate of Johns Hopkins, is the uh, most uh, lavish uh, and enthusiastic supporter of the university, fortunately. He also was chairman of the Board of Trustees and was quite active before he got into politics, uh, which unfortunately left the board and got into politics from that point of view. Uh, in any case, the session bubbles under alternative monetary regimes, uh, forces me to start by defining a few things and what kind of regime do we have right now? I want to look at the existing regime and uh, do a little diagnosis of that and uh, reach some conclusions. We've got inflation targeting and a floating exchange rate regime. That's the, the system that we're in. So we have a monetary policy, but we don't have an exchange rate policy in the United States. Uh, and monetary policy is deemed to be generally acceptable if inflation uh, defined by the consumer price index uh, is roughly in the zero to two percent range. Now first let's look at bubbles uh, because that's uh, part of the session, part of the title, bubbles under alternative monetary regimes. And the first crack at this I will take is uh, to follow work that Bill Niskanen has done looking at the uh, kind of, shall we say, the economy from 30,000 feet, bubbles from 30,000 feet. And, and the bubbles from 30,000 feet 
can be detected by looking at uh, demand bubbles. And if you look at the final sales to domestic purchasers in the United States, that's the, the, the best measure that we have for aggregate demand. And if we start back at the beginning of the Greenspan era, uh, late, 1990, late 1987, and, and then take it up through uh, the current uh, scene, uh, we've had three large demand bubbles. Uh, and the demand bubble has to be looked at in terms of what has a trend rate of growth been in aggregate demand, final sales to domestic purchasers. The trend rate in nominal growth has been 5.4% over that period. It was broken out with 3% real and 2.4% inflation. Now, the first bubble occurred, and, and the sequence to, to kind of come to the conclusion of, of these bubbles and quickly go over this 30,000-foot view is that the Fed, under inflation targeting, or kind of de facto inflation targeting and a floating exchange rate regime has tended to uh, react to panic and panic uh, when there's a perceived crisis uh, or disturbance in the economy or the financial system and, and kind of press the, the, the pedal to the metal, so to speak, and, and get the economy really warmed up and, and create a demand bubble and, and, and then once it's obvious there's a demand bubble going, uh, they tend to let their foot off the accelerator and put on the brakes and you get some kind of a slump, uh, a milder or uh, great, as in the case of the current one we're uh, experiencing right now. So, as you recall, Greenspan arrived shortly after the stock market crash in 1987 and, and of course, the, the, the pedal did go to the metal and the nominal growth rate shot up to about 7.5%, which is obviously inconsistent with hitting an inflation target of uh, no more than 2% if you've got a long-run trend in real growth of 3%. The second uh, bubble, demand bubble, occurred after a, a whole sequence of things in 90, starting in 1997 with the Asian financial crisis, and then we had the the Russian ruble crisis, and and the uh, long-term capital problems, and then the the Brazilian real blew out late, late in 1998, and again the the pedal was uh, uh, put to the metal, and we got that time nominal final sales to domestic purchasers was up over eight percent. It it really shot up and was very high. Then, of course, as you'll recall, we tended to get the brake put on and the equity bubble burst of 2000 and a mild recession of 2001. Then, of course, the, the third episode uh, was the one that we're uh, still in the afterglow of, shall we say. And uh, that one really started after 2002, and the nominal aggregate demand numbers got up again to the 7.5% range uh, before uh, the panic of 2008 uh, set in. So if that's the 30,000-foot uh, picture, what's the more micro uh, than low level where the rubber's meeting the road look like? 
yes, there, there was a housing bubble. We've already had uh, several people in the first panel talking about the housing bubble. Uh, and, and in fact, it, it was a bubble. Uh, Vernon Smith has done a lot of work in experimental economics, and, and I like Vernon's line is that you, you can always create a bubble with these market participants if you give them enough ammunition. And, and the bubble is when you have prices that are disconnected to the fundamentals involved. And in the housing market, if we just look roughly at what was going on to get the fundamentals, uh, the demographic demand for housing, that is uh, new, new family formation and, and first purchases of houses, uh, purchases trend rate and purchasing second homes, and then replacement of about 300,000 units a year of homes that are destroyed by fire and flood and so forth, and, and just simply old age. Uh, the demographic demand runs about a million and a half a year. So if, if that's the demand, and starting in 2002, we had housing starts that, that went every year at about two million. So you were adding excess inventory of about 500,000 homes, given this kind of uh, scenario between demand and supply. And at the same time, of course, the, the housing prices were going to the moon. So this is... This is a disconnect between housing prices and the fundamentals. So this would be like Smith's experiments where he gives the participants enough ammo and you always can get a bubble. Meaning, and the key thing here is that the monetary authority is a great enabler that creates a bubble. Of course, there are many other things going, that were going on in the housing bubble, but the enabler was the Fed. Uh, then there were other things, of course, going on uh, after rates went down, as Jerry O'Driscoll uh, reminded us in 2003, the, the record low 1% and stayed there for a year. Record at the time, that is. That's, an, oh, that's the old record. But we had, of course, carry trades came in, and, and, and the great enabler allowed that to, to happen. Monetary policy did influence the carry trade. Also, yield chasing became the flavor of the day, and uh, the yield chasing uh, is where you got the little leverage going. I mean, if you, if you have very thin margins and you're chasing yield, the only way you can really uh, rack up some returns is to do a lot of leveraging. And you also had the other thing that was very important is what I call a dance of the dollar. Uh, once Remember, the, the third demand bubble, I, I failed to mention, the, the crisis or perceived problem that caused the Fed to, to step on it after in late 2002, early 2003, was, was Bernanke's famous deflation speech that the biggest fear on, on the earth was deflation, and we have to fight deflation. And uh, he convinced Greenspan of this early in 2003, and as they say, the rest is, is history. But that's what, how you got that third aggregate demand bubble coming into the picture. But at any rate, once you, you did get the, the pedal to the metal, the dollar started falling, and against the euro from 2002 until July of 2008, the dollar had fallen 45% against the euro. And remember, right before Lehman... In, in July, 
of 2008, the, the big issue on Capitol Hill and the hearings and everything, they were all associated with food prices. You, 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 you had record levels for rice, which was a big problem in, in Asia in particular. Uh, you had oil going up to $147 a barrel. Uh, gold was skyrocketing. All the commodities were going up as the dollar went down. Now, you also had big changes in relative prices going on in this period uh, with the dance of the dollar uh, also. And, and core... Uh, personal consumption expenditures were that that index was going up from over the whole period 2003 to the third quarter of 2008 when it peaked up it went up 13 percent it was just a steady linear type of curve if you if you plot the thing out going up only 13 percent modestly so and in the inflation targeting world there there was no problem whatsoever i mean you were you were making the target, and, and there was nothing to be concerned about. But if you started looking at relative prices, which, which any Austrian economist or anyone trained in classical economics or perhaps anyone with any common sense would be looking at, you, you had a lot of things going on. The Case-Shiller Index from 2003 to when it peaked in, in the first quarter of 2006 went up 45% in that brief period. Remember, now the duration here is a lot shorter than the, than the one I gave you for the 13%. You, you had al almost 2003 to 2008 with a 13% on the core inflation number. And, and the housing I'm, I'm giving you, that to peak out, it took a lot less time and it went up a lot higher. So if you graph it, it, it really goes up not in this shallow little linear thing running out there with like the consumer price index, but it shoots right up. Now, stocks, of course, boom, 2003 to when they peaked in the fourth quarter of 07, 92% uh, increase. The CRB, the Commodity Research Bureau's uh, index, 2003 to the second quarter of 2008, when it peaked up, peaked out, 92% increase. And this was coming mainly through the dollar, by the way. I've calculated the, the contribution of the dollar's decline to the commodity price indexes, uh, and most uh, international uh, commodities are traded in international markets and priced in dollars. So this is just an automatic translation that occurs. But all the, all the commodity prices had at least a 50% contribution of their increase due to the fact that the dollar had collapsed uh, in general and in particular against the euro. Now, uh, also on the dance of the dollar, I've, I've been given my two-minute. I think I'm probably down to one minute, Carolyn. But uh, on the dance of the dollar in the... That, that's to July of 2008 when the, when the dollar hit, hit its bottom. And, and then it turned around, and, and we had from July of 2008 until November of 2008, the dollar appreciated about 29% against the euro. So we had this huge uh, decline in the dollar and run up in commodity prices, and then the thing just flipped completely around. And, it, and people like Bob Mundell, for example, uh, 
in his diagnosis is that the big contributor to the Lehman problem and the panic that ensued after uh, Lehman blew up was the fact that the Fed was ultra tight. And he's looking at it in kind of a Vixellian world saying, you know, the dollar was getting very strong, commodity prices, gold prices, and oil were collapsing. Very tight. Say, this signals very tight money. So this is part of the, the, the dance of the dollar that uh, is associated with this inflation targeting and the fact that you have a monetary policy but no, no exchange rate policy. Now, what's the Fed said about all of this? Uh, they've essentially ignored the, the kind of Niskanen 30,000-foot demand bubble uh, issue. They, they have never really responded to that, or, nor have they been asked to. In terms of the housing problem, they have indicated, uh, yeah, there were lots of problems, but uh, uh, congressional uh, 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 pushing of housing, uh, lax regulation and so forth, but monetary policy didn't have anything to do with this. I mean, the Fed is, is literally, Bernanke has testified as to this uh, as recently as about three or four months ago. In terms of the commodity uh, prices and the linkage of monetary policy and the dollar, at the time in June of 2008, uh, Chairman Bernanke testified that there was a, no link between the dollar and, and commodity prices. I mean, that's, that's in testimony. I mean, it, it's just kind of unbelievable. Uh, and they have ignored the relative pricing issue, the, the kind of Austrian, the, the something's out of whack if you get, you know, a, a lot of prices that are diverging, shall we say, a great deal from that smooth uh, consumer price uh, level increase. So we, we, we have the Fed is followed and stayed true to true to the course. They, they've denied everything, and no culpability whatsoever, and they've done their best to dissemble whenever they possibly could. So you ask why, and I am just about done. I, I appreciate your forbearance. <laughs> uh, I'm bigger than you are, Caroline. So <laughs> uh, I, I'll be done in, in one okay. minute, Caroline. Uh, so you, you really have to ask the question, why? I mean, how can they get by with uh, the, these kinds of denials and, and uh, no association of monetary policy with, with any of these problems that, that we're witnessing? And I think Milton Friedman hit on this. Uh, there was a book in, 1990, in, in 1975 uh, in honor of Friedman, and Tollock recounted in that book, uh, he, Tollock wrote a chapter, and he said that, Friedman indicated that one reason the Fed gets such good press and gets by with murder is that 98% of all the information and writing about the Fed is from the Fed. <laughs> now, since then, uh, actually Larry White, who I, I don't want to have him report on his uh, classic article in which he investigated the publications and the authorship of publications on monetary economics in the United States and find out roughly that 74% of all the publications in 2002 were either in Fed-sponsored journals or by people who had 
been associated with the Fed or were on the Fed staff in 2002. So it's a confirmation, really, of what Friedman, uh, one of Friedman's typical wisecracks, but it was, as usual, fairly accurate. So indeed, um, the, the Fed's account of things bear, bears no relationship to the facts, not even the relationship which is implied by an ordinary lie. And with that, I will take my seat. Thank you. Thank you, Steve. Um, next, we'll hear from uh, George Tavlis. Thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be back at the Cato Institute, and I'm grateful to Jim Dawn for inviting me to be here. Let me also mention that it's a pleasure to be in the United States again, which more than ever feels like being at home. <laughs> <laughs> It's not often that I get to travel to a country that has fiscal deficits that remind me of those of Greece. As you may know, the Greek government is working to bring down the deficits, but that's an issue beyond the scope of my presentation. Clarence Darrow once said that history repeats itself, and that's the problem with history. My presentation, based on work I'm doing with Hattie Stellis, who's at the University of Bern, will deal with an international monetary regime that appears to have repeated itself, the Bretton Woods regime, and the role of the revived regime in the surge of global liquidity that's occurred since the early 2000s and the bubbles observed in the prices of commodities and other investment vehicles. Here is a Bretton Woods story. The original Bretton Woods regime was a formal fixed exchange rate arrangement that lasted for about 25 years from the mid-1940s until 1973, at which time the system broke down in the wake of a speculative attack against the U.S. dollar. Under that regime, Western European countries and Japan maintained undervalued currencies against the dollar, accumulating large amounts of dollar reserves in the pursuit of export-led growth. The United States was at the center of that system. It played the role of world banker, running balance of payments deficits and supplying dollar reserves to other countries. As world banker, it engaged in maturity transformation, accumulating short-term dollar liabilities while lending long-term on net to the rest of the world. Other countries pegged the currencies against the dollar. The U.S., for its part, fixed the price of the dollar, $35 per ounce of gold, freely buying gold from and selling gold to official bodies at that price. During the 1960s, however, the U.S. Fed began pursuing expansionary monetary policies for domestic reasons, paying little attention to growing balance of payments deficits, especially at the end of the decade. As a result, and, and as I'm going to document, the growth of global liquidity surged beginning in 1970. Commodity prices exploded, and the Bretton Woods regime broke down. Now let's turn to what has been dubbed the new Bretton Woods regime. In a series of influential papers, Michael Dooley, David Focus Landau, and Peter Garber argue that the constellation of exchange rate arrangements that emerged in the early 2000s constitutes a revived Bretton Woods system. The revived Bretton Woods metaphor runs as follows. As was the case under the earlier regime, the present regime consists of a center country and a group of countries comprising a periphery. The center country has been the United States under both regimes. Under the old Bretton Woods system, the emerging economies 
the economies of Western Europe and Japan were the periphery, the emerging economies of China, of uh, Asia, including China, are the new periphery. Under both regimes, there's asymmetric monetary policy behavior, with the Fed ignoring external factors and setting their domestic interest rates, but the policymakers in the periphery focusing on external factors. Under both regimes, the periphery follows export-led growth strategies based on undervalued currencies pegged against the dollar. Under both regimes, the U.S. provides the main export market for the periphery, validating the export-led growth strategy of that group of countries. As was the case under the earlier regime, the, the U.S. plays the role of world banker, providing financial intermediation services for the rest of the world, especially the periphery. As we saw, the earlier regime lasted for more than 25 years. The authors of the revived Bretton Woods story argue that the present regime, which they say began in the early 2000s, will also be long-lasting. In my view, the foregoing story is original, provocative, and seriously incomplete. Although there's much insight in this story, it overlooks a fundamental change that occurred in the late 1960s, early 70s, a change that led to a surge of global liquidity, a commodity price bubble, and a crisis, contributing to the collapse of the earlier regime. That change has carried over to the revived Bretton Woods regime and appears to have contributed to the asset price bubbles and the crisis that, that occurred in August of 2007. Allow me to illustrate my argument with some data on the growth rates of global liquidity and commodity prices. I present data for four periods, 1960 through 69, 1970 through 74, roughly corresponding to the final years of the earlier Bretton Woods regime, plus a year added for lagged effects, 1975 through 2002, and 2003 through 2007, corresponding to the revived Bretton Woods regime until the year of the crisis. During the periods 1960 to 69 and 75 through 2002, the average annual growth rates of global reserves were 8% and 9.5% respectively. During the final years of the earlier Bretton Woods regime, the average annual increase of global liquidity surged to 30% a year. And during the period corresponding to the revived Bretton Woods regime until the year of the crisis, the increase of global liquidity again surged to 20% a year. What about commodity prices? I use a comprehensive index of 30 commodities compiled by the European Central Bank. Commodity prices increased by only 1% a year on average during 1960 to 69, and by only 2.5% during the period 1975 through 2002. But during the final years of the earlier Bretton Woods regime, 1970 through 74, commodity prices surged to 34% a year average increase. And during the period corresponding to the revived Bretton Woods regime, that is 2003 through 2007, the average, average annual increase of commodity prices again surged to 22% a year. We can therefore conclude that both commodity prices and global reserves increased by very modest rates during the periods 1960 to 69 and 1975 through 2002, but surged during the final years of the earlier Bretton Woods regime and the period marking the revived Bretton Woods regime until the year of the crisis. What happened in the final years, what happened during the final stages of the earlier Bretton Woods regime to cause the growth of global liquidity to surge upward? Under that regime, 
discipline on the United States, the center of the system, and the main provider of global liquidity was imposed in two ways. First, as we saw, the U.S. fixed the price of the dollar at $35 per ounce of gold. Second, the U.S. maintained the convertibility of the dollar into gold at that fixed price. If U.S. policies were overly expansionary, the resulting balance of payments deficits were paid for by sending dollars abroad. Foreign central banks were allowed to exchange those dollars at gold at the U.S. Treasury, imposing some discipline over U.S. policies. In the late 1960s, however, the U.S. took several measures, including the removal of what had been a 25% gold backing requirement on the issuance of Federal Reserve notes that helped cut the link between the dollar and gold. In 1971, President Nixon cut the remaining link between the dollar and gold with the announcement that the U.S. would no longer sell gold to foreign central banks. Those measures transformed the earlier Bretton Woods regime from one based on the convertibility of the dollar into gold to one based purely on fiat money. The Bretton Woods regime was set adrift without an anchor. With the recent reemergence of a large periphery that maintains pegged undervalued currencies against the dollar, the conditions that led to the breakdown of the earlier Bretton Woods regime have been reintroduced. I don't want to push the Bretton Woods metaphor too far. Clearly, many major currencies, including the euro, float against the dollar, and some Asian emerging economies don't follow tight dollar pegs. Nevertheless, to the extent that a large and rising share of U.S. external trade is conducted under pegged exchange rates, an overvalued dollar, and without an external constraint, a disciplinary constraint on the center country, there are some striking similarities between the regime that broke down in the early 1970s and the regime that emerged in the early 2000s. Allow me to point out some salient characteristics of the global financial system in the five years ending in 2007, the year of the crisis. As we saw, large increases in global, rigid, uh, global liquidity and commodity prices occurred, and in the U.S., share prices and property prices. U.S. current account deficits during those five years averaged 5.5% of GDP, compared with 1.5% of GDP during the preceding 30 years. Measured in terms of special drawing rights, SDRs, the cumulative total of the U.S. current account deficits during those five years was 2.6 trillion SDRs. To what extent do those deficits relate to the surge in global liquidity? During the same period, the rise in global liquidity amounted to 2.4 trillion SDRs, almost the same amount. Seven Asian emerging economies, economies that form the core of the new periphery, contributed to almost 50% of the rise in global reserves. And as we all know, and this has been pointed out earlier today, the U.S. had very low interest rates for much of this period. The relationship among these characteristics is marked by interconnected feedback loops. Consider the following. The exchange rate policy of the periphery, under which the periphery accumulated reserves and invested in U.S. financial assets, pushed up the prices of those assets and lowered U.S. interest rates. The exchange rate policy of the periphery contributed to higher growth in the periphery, underpinned by exports, increasing the demand for commodities as inputs into production, 
pushing up the prices of those inputs. In turn, those price rises made commodities more attractive as investment vehicles. Higher commodity prices widened the U.S. current account deficits. They also widened the current account surpluses of commodity exporters, including oil exporters, many of which maintained dollar pegs. Those surpluses resulted in higher reserves and lower U.S. interest rates. Lower U.S. interest rates increased U.S. domestic demand, increasing the U.S. current account deficits and pushing up U.S. asset prices. Higher U.S. asset prices led, through wealth and balance sheet effects, to an increase in U.S. economic growth, pushing up asset prices further. There are other feedback loops, but I think my point is clear. Let me conclude with the following observations. Under the earlier Bretton Woods regime, the U.S. had a formal commitment to maintain a peg for the dollar. In contrast, under the revived regime, the peg has been unilaterally maintained by the Asian periphery. The U.S. Fed, as uh, has been pointed out today, has delivered what it was supposed to deliver, low, in, low domestic inflation. But the policy of the periphery has created a situation conducive to large U.S. current account deficits, high global liquidity creation, and asset price bubbles. In the world comprised of fiat currencies with a large, powerful center country that operates in the absence of an external disciplinary constraint, floating exchange rates among all the major currency areas would provide a mechanism for some adjustment of global imbalances and a safeguard against asset price bubbles and the future crisis. I thank you. Thank you, George. Uh, next, we'll hear from Lawrence White. Thank you. Um, I'm going to say some favorable things about a type of gold standard. Uh, namely, I'm going to argue that a gold standard with free banking uh, would have restrained the kind of boom and bust cycle we had in 2001 to 2010. But I warn you that in speaking uh, kindly of the gold standard, I realize I'm taking a minority position among economists in 2010, possibly even a minority position among economists in this room. <laughs> uh, but I have some evidence of that uh, minority status. Maybe you saw this uh, uh, 10 days ago. The New York Times has an online feature in, uh, called Room for Debate, and the topic for debate that day was uh, back to the gold standard, question mark. And it was, the debate was prompted by uh, a suggestion by World Bank Chief Robert Zellick uh, that the price of gold be used as a reference point for inflation and currency values. So we ought to listen to what the price of gold is telling us. Uh, Zellick's suggestion, of course, set off a flurry of blogging, uh, both pro and con, uh, the gold standard. But it, I found it kind of heartening that... Uh, when the anti-gold bloggers' uh, best argument is to call Zelik, quote, one of the stupidest men alive, I think the pro-gold side wins by default. <laughs> but back to the New York Times, the Times invited uh, six economists to address the question of whether moving to a gold standard modified in whatever way you might like uh, makes sense. And all six of the economists rejected moving to any kind of gold standard. So that's a debate, according to the New York Times. 
<laughs> not my idea of a debate. <laughs> I would not have thought that academic defenders of the gold standard are all that hard to find. <laughs> Uh, but if the New York Times selection wasn't biased, then we can infer that fewer than one in six economists thinks any type of a gold standard makes sense. Uh, so mine is a New York Times certified min minority position. Uh, the topic of this panel is uh, bubbles under alternative monetary regimes or boom-bust cycles under alternative monetary regimes. I won't say much about uh, the cycle we've been through. Uh, Steve Hankey did a good job, and I expect John Taylor to... Uh, provide more details at lunch. Um, so I, I subscribe to the view that the uh, Fed kept uh, interest rates too low for too long, which is a phrase that too many economists have repeated too many times, uh, by injecting too much credit. And the Fed made these mistakes despite its supporters having assured us during the great moderation that the Fed had learned from past errors and the art of central banking had now been perfected. Uh, I want to talk about uh, a commodity money regime and, as I said, argue that the boom-bust scenario would not have played out that way, could not have played out that way, under a commodity standard with free banking. Uh, under that kind of regime, any incipient housing boom would have been automatically dampened uh, well before a severe bust became inevitable. Uh, and. Uh, Jerry Jordan did a good job of reminding us this morning that an automatic gold standard has reliable, self-equilibrating properties uh, that our current regime does not have. Now, I specify a commodity standard with free banking because simply saying a commodity standard, or to be more specific, a gold standard, doesn't fully enough describe the monetary regime. Uh, we have to ask who issues most of the money uh, held by the public, uh, which is bank-issued money or central bank issued money. There's a big distinction there. Uh, so there are at least three varieties of gold standard that need to be distinguished. Uh, one, a gold standard with a discretionary central bank, as in the United States during the 1920s. Uh, that's the most poorly constrained kind of gold standard. The intermediate case is a gold standard with a well-behaved central bank, one that plays by the rules of the game. I'm afraid I can't provide a historical example of that. <laughs> Uh, they're quite rare if you read Arthur Bloomfield's famous 1959 study. Uh, and third, the, the most well-constrained system is a gold standard without a central bank, uh, but instead with free banking and a self-organized clearinghouse system. If we think about the discretionary case first and ask, could a poorly constrained central bank, even when it's officially on a gold standard, uh, that is, a central bank that can act with discretion and isn't tightly bound by the rules of the game, could it have replicated the Federal Reserve's recent policy mistakes? And I think, unfortunately, the answer is yes. So a gold standard is not enough. Uh, during the 1920s, while it was officially on a gold standard, the Fed made very similar mistakes. Um, it held interest rates too low for too long by creating too much credit. Um, the, I skipped details about the context in which they thought that was the right policy. But as we know, the U.S. economy boomed. Uh, the real economy boomed until June 1929. It boomed in a disproportionate way with uh, overexpansion in interest-sensitive uh, heavy industries. Uh, asset prices rose until October of 1929, and then the boom collapsed, as it had to, although, of course, the, the subsequent contraction was much more severe than it needed to to uh, correct the boom. But this all happened under the Fed 
not tightly constrained by the gold standard, but rather conducting an experimental dollar standard. Uh, so there's the problem that a poorly constrained central bank, even under a gold standard, can uh, overexpand credit. Uh, but even in that case, of course, it can't keep the boom going forever. Uh, even when there's no limit to how far the money supply can expand in nominal terms, uh, there is a limit to how long you can fool people into thinking that investment prospects are better than they really are or that they're wealthier than they really are. If we consider the intermediate case with a, a better constrained central bank on a gold standard, uh, there's an automatic self-regulating mechanism that is the famous price specie flow mechanism operates on the central bank. Um, when gold flows into the country, a well-constrained central bank allows domestic commercial bank reserves to rise, thereby allows the domestic money stock to rise, the domestic price level to rise, um, until gold is no longer attracted. And I leave as an exercise to the reader, substitute dollar for gold in the case of countries that are pegged to the dollar uh, as an external standard, uh, as George Tavlis was talking about. Uh, but even a well-intentioned central bank is, of course, fallible. And one of the problems the Fed had in the 20s was that uh, there was a genuine opening of new investment opportunities. And as loan demand increased with new investment opportunities, instead of letting loan interest rates rise to the new equilibrium rates uh, needed to accurately ration the limited supply of real savings, uh, the Fed began to expand credit to keep interest rates from rising. It's a problem that the natural rate was rising and the Fed did not let the market rate rise. And, of course, the Fed had no way of knowing exactly where the new natural rate was. Uh, and that's a problem generally for central banks. Um, but a, a tightly constrained central bank in that kind of process will discover its mistake faster than a loosely constrained central bank. It'll end the expansion because it'll start losing gold reserves, um, and the expansion won't go on quite as long. So the credit booms will be shorter and the bus will be less severe. But if we really want to minimize credit-driven booms and busts, we need a tightly constrained system. Uh, and I think the best system of tight constraints is free banking, where interbank competition enforces the commitment of issuing banks to gold redeemability, uh, and that constrains money creation. And where there's no central bank, there's no central bank to loosen that constraint, which has been the historical tendency of central banks. So a system-wide overexpansion is hardly possible because there isn't any one bank that's supplying the fuel, that's supplying reserves to all the other banks. There's no leader uh, in whose wake the commercial banks all follow. If we go back to the scenario of an increase in genuine investment opportunities uh, and a strengthening of loan <coughs> demand, a system of competing banks of issue won't prevent the loan interest rate from rising to the new higher equilibrium level. True, no individual bank knows where that is either, but the market will discover where that is. And the rising interest rate will curb over-enthusiasm and curb asset price bubbles. Curbing asset prices will in turn avoid the phenomenon uh, that Jerry Jordan referred to earlier as your house is your ATM. Consumers thinking that their paper wealth now makes it rational for them to stop saving and start a consumption binge. So uh, Hayek had a name for this. Uh, he called it the interest rate break the interest rate break will operate to prevent malinvestment and overconsumption in a system where interest rates are set uh, in a market not controlled by a central bank. So banks as a whole will not be in a position to expand 
unless interest rates rise, and then they might expand a little because their deposits uh, will rise, but otherwise they won't. Even then, banks won't all expand at a uniform rate, and the interbank clearing system keeps uh, other banks in line with the most conservative banks. Uh, that nips excess expansion in the bud. Now, some critics of free banking, some advocates of central banking back in the 19th century, but this uh, argument's been echoed in the more recently, have imagined a, a collusive expansion in unison by dozens of commercial banks. Uh, this scenario just doesn't make sense. If a dominant set of banks could collude, and they would want to act jointly like a monopolist, and what do we know about a monopolist? A monopolist wants to restrict output, not expand output. Restrict output in order to get monopoly prices. In banking, that would mean a bigger spread between deposit rates and loan rates, but a lowering the deposit rate, which is what the cartel would want to do, means a smaller volume of intermediation, not a larger volume of intermediation. Now, there's another scenario, which is kind of like the one I spelled out of central bank trying to accommodate uh, the demands of credit by not letting the interest rate rise. Uh, Hayek himself actually spelled out a scenario in which he thought commercial banks might do that. Uh, but I think that's implausible, because for each bank, there's a cost of lowering its reserve ratio, namely the bigger risk of running out of reserves. And a bank needs to be induced by a higher return if it's going to run a higher liquidity risk. And so you won't get that without the interest rate rising uh, and thereby nipping the expansion in, in the bud. Uh, if we go to the next backstop, which is the loss of gold reserves, it'll happen uh, in a decentralized way, in a decentralized system of issue, there won't be any possible countervailing action by a central bank trying to sterilize gold flows because there won't be any central bank. But maybe the more important point is each individual issuer in, in a competitive system that has no privileges, that isn't in a special monopoly position, uh, has to worry about its reputation and has to observe its contracts. Right? Uh, central banks face neither a reputational nor a legal constraint. Right? They don't have any competitors to worry about, and you can't sue them. So there's very little penalty for bad behavior, which explains why Bloomfield had a hard time finding any central banks that really played by the rules of the gold standard game. When there's no penalty, then playing by the <laughs> rules of the game really is a game. Whereas for commercial banks that don't have privileges, I'm assuming that there's no too-big-to-fail doctrine, uh, behaving prudently is a matter of life and death. Uh, okay. In the aftermath of the uh, crash, we've had uh, a large amount of bailouts, uh, but the larger amount of bailouts, as has been mentioned already, didn't come from the Treasury. It came from the Federal Reserve buying uh, bad assets uh, and overpaying for them. Uh, in order to beef up the capital positions of the banks uh, it was purchasing them from. And we look at the expansion of the Fed's balance sheet, that's something like $1.25 trillion of bailout. Well, how much of it was overpayment, uh, we would have to figure out some fraction of it. So under our current discretionary fiat money regime, uh, the Federal Reserve has carte blanche to expand its balance sheet as much as it likes. It's, of course, recently uh, promised to expand it another 25%. And one of the simple and basic virtues of a gold standard is that even a badly managed central bank can't expand that much before the constraint of the gold standard begins to kick in. 
And one of the virtues of a free and robust banking system is that there's no need for quantitative easing because there's no previous boom and bust. Now, without the Fed, what would replace monetary policy? Maybe I should say a little more about what I'm assuming. Uh, commercial banks would return to issuing all types of money, as they did before central banks um, nationalized that function. Uh, a commodity standard, most plausibly a gold standard, would regulate the quantity of basic money. No need for the wisdom of an open market committee, uh, with apologies to Adam Posen. Uh, now, no less authority and authority than Alan Greenspan actually endorsed this idea that you don't need a central bank when you have a commodity standard. I don't know if you saw this. He went on The Daily Show to plug his book in 2007, and based on my own transcript, because I recorded it and wrote it down verbatim, uh, John Stewart asked, why do we have someone adjusting rates, meaning interest rates, if we are in a free market society? Right? If you believe in, in other words, if you believe in free market capitalism, why should we have a central bank? And Greenspan actually looked stunned for a second and acknowledged that that is a good question. <laughs> uh, and here's his answer, Greenspan's answer. You didn't need a central bank when we were on the gold standard, which was back in the 19th century, and all the automatic things occurred because people would buy and sell gold and the market would do what the Fed does now. Uh, and then he added, to the extent that there is a central bank governing the amount of money in the system, that is not a free market. And for once, I think uh, Greenspan was indisputably right. <laughs> Thank you, Larry. It's too bad The Daily Show wasn't around in 1987, I guess, when, uh, when, he, when he took office. Uh, now we'll hear from Kevin Dowd. Thank you. Um, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'd like to take a rather different tack, and actually to a completely different tack. And uh, I'd like to start with a parable, literally. Uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, <clears throat> Jesus recounts the parable of the talents, the master goes away and he leaves each of three servants with sums of money to look after. He then returns and holds them to account. The first two have invested wisely and give a good return and are rewarded. The third, however, is a wicked servant who did nothing with the money except bury it. So he gives his master a zero return. He is punished and thrown into the darkness where there is weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. I'm not quite sure what the gnashing of teeth is, but anyway. Now, in the modern American version, the eternal truth of the original remains. Good stewardship is all important. Here, the master is the American public who unwisely entrusts his capital to the stewardship of his servants, the Federal Reserve and the Federal Government. Now, to be fair, these servants are not especially wicked, but they sure are incompetent. <laughs> They manage to squander so much of their master's capital that he is ruined. And it is he, rather than they, who go on to suffer all the wailing and teeth gnashing, not to mention impoverishment. For their part, the two incompetent servants deny all responsibility. And since there's no accountability in this version, let alone biblical justice, they ride off into the sunset, insisting that none of this was their fault. So let's start with the Fed. Since October 79, the Fed's primary monetary goal had been the fight against inflation. This changed with Chairman Greenspan's testimony to Congress in February 95. This indicated a shift to soft money. 
The Dow then rose above 4,000 the next day and was off to the races. By December 596, the, the Dow was already at 6,400, and Greenspan famously expressed his doubts about the market's irrational exuberance. Nevertheless, he did nothing but push interest rates down for the next three years. Meanwhile, tech stocks went through the roof and then crashed. The cycle then repeated. In January 2001, Greenspan began a series of interest rate cuts that saw Fed funds fall to 1% in 2003. He held it at that rate for a year, and short-term interest rates were below inflation for almost four years. This was a much more aggressive monetary policy, and the results are entirely predictable. In Steve Hankey's splendid phrase, there was the mother of all liquidity cycles and yet another massive demand boom, subprime and all that. Ben Bernanke then intensified his predecessor's policy with massive monetary expansion, a doubling of the base, Fed funds down to 25 basis points, large amounts of quantitative easing, etc. Now, within the U.S., there are at least three very obvious bubbles currently in full swing, each fueled by the flood of cheap money. Now, the first of these is the Treasury bond market. This has, been, this has seen a major boom since 2007, fueled by a combination of large deficits, large government deficits, enormous investor demand, and low interest rates pushing prices up to record levels. The second is financials. The Fed's interest rate policy allows banks to borrow short-term at close to 0% and invest at 3% or so in long-term treasuries. This enables them to sit back with their 3% uh, plus spreads, leverage 20 times or so to give a comfortable 60% plus return. The bottom line is that becoming a yield curve player is far more profitable and avoids all that tiresome business of lending to small business. So it's no wonder that lending to SMEs remains anemic. In addition, we need to consider that the bank's true financial positions are disguised by accounting rules, so-called fair value accounting allows practitioners to hide true losses and loot the system. You use a model to create fictitious profits, uh, fictitious valuations, and then fictitious profits, and then pay yourself a handsome bonus for the profit you've created. Then there's crooked financial engineering. Clever financial engineers are always finding ingenious ways to play the system. The most lucrative schemes involve gaming the Basel capital rules to create fictitious profits and unlock, unlock capital that can, can then be used to pay bonuses to clever financial engineers and their managers. Now, the current flavor of the month is the failed sale scam, a dastardly transaction that looks like an innocent repo, but which is in reality a backdoor way of hypothecating bank assets and deceiving counterparties. They enter into transactions with banks but do not realize that the prime assets that appear to buttress banks' balance sheets are already furtively pledged to other parties. These practices secretly decapitalize the banking system and, of course, are just another form of looting and fraud. Underlying all of this, we have to remember that the banks are only able to continue operating because they're on state life support propped up by repeated bailouts and guarantees. The third bubble is junk. 
And the last two years have witnessed a huge growth in junk bond issues, and this is extraordinary in the deepest recession since World War II. And we would say that each of these bubbles is characterized by obvious irrationality. So in the tech boom, we had pets.com, based on the idea that there was money to be made FedExing cat food around the country. <laughs> Yet this company could not cover the costs of sending kitty litter through the post. <laughs> I'm not joking. It made its IPO in February 2000 and put itself down a mere 288 days later. <laughs> so, so let's face it, as an investment, Pets.com was a real dog. <laughs> Sorry about that. In the, in the housing bubble, we had the irrationality of ninja loans and house prices in some parts of the country running at eight to ten times national income. With treasuries, we have the irrationality of a one-way bet scenario reminiscent of a beleaguered currency facing a speculative attack. In such circumstances, the only rational response is to sell, and yet investors' money still pours in. And by the way, a free investment tip, cash out and try the mattress. At least there's no danger of a capital loss. In financials, we have the irrationality of the banks apparently profitable, whilst the credit system is still jammed up and most banks dependent on life support. And in the junk market, we have the irrationality of a major boom in lending to the riskiest corporate borrowers in the middle of a major credit crunch and in the certain knowledge that many of these will default. So sooner rather than later, it will dawn on investors that treasuries are overvalued. The likely scenario is some combination of quantitative easing and yawning deficits will cause a further decline in the dollar that shatters confidence. There'll then be a rush to the exits, forcing up interest rates and inflicting heavy losses on bondholders. This will then feed through to other bubbles. They too will collapse. We'll then enter a new banking crisis and many highly leveraged firms, financial and otherwise, will go belly up. These financial tsunamis are also likely to overwhelm the Fed itself, which is a balance sheet like a highly leveraged hedge fund. And then there is the problem of resurgent inflation. Renewed inflation will eventually force the Fed into sharp reverse. The US will then experience a nasty stagflation, given the carnage of a renewed crisis and large increases in money supply feeding through. And as in the early 80s, higher interest rates will then lead to major falls in asset prices and wipe out banks' capital bases. We've also to consider how periods of prolonged, low and often negative real interest rates have led to sharply reduced saving and hence lower capital accumulation. And I think it's manifestly obvious that savings rates are inadequate to provide for the maintenance, let alone growth, of the U.S. capital stock. The bottom line is that the U.S. is eating its own seed corn. We should also appreciate that the federal government is a pretty good capital destroyer as well. I mean, the wastefulness of government infrastructure projects is legendary, and I take as read the vast amount of wastage in recent federal spending programs. Then there's fiscal policy. Over the last three years, U.S. official debt has grown to a little over 94% of GDP. This is a very high figure, but it's merely the tip of a much bigger iceberg. The official debt of the United States is dwarfed by its unofficial debt, social security and other entitlements, to which the government has committed itself 
but not provided for. Now, estimates of this debt are hair-raising. My favourite one is by Larry Kotlikov recently, who estimated it to be $202 trillion. That's nearly 14 times GDP. And he concluded that the United States is bankrupt. Now, the long-term effect of US decapitalisation will not be apparent in day-to-day headlines. Instead, the process will be glacial, mostly slow, but utterly devastating, leading eventually to declining U.S. living standards. And I would suggest that Americans take heed from the experiences of other once wealthy countries whose economies were crippled by progressive decapitalization. One is Britain, of course. Britain was still a wealthy country in the late 1930s. But when the war broke out, the government took control, complete control of the economy and seized its entire capital stock. Over the next decades, a bloated state sector and onerous controls deprived British industry of the capital it needed to refit, and the country went into long-term economic decline. By the late 1970s, the UK was essentially the sick man of Europe, and British living standards had fallen to half those in the United States. The other role model to avoid is Argentina, still one of the world's wealthiest economies as late as 1930, It then embarked on wildly extravagant schemes of corruption, nationalisation and income redistribution. The result was progressive impoverishment, repeated defaults and the country's descent into its present socialist squalor and a GDP per capita close to that of Libya. Now, thankfully, such a future is not inevitable, but I think radical reforms will be needed to prevent it. As far as monetary policy is concerned... I'm glad uh, for what Larry has just said because he saved me repeating what was a wonderful talk. Uh, The best solution, the very appropriate one, is simply to abolish the Fed. And in doing so, of course, we should re-anchor the dollar to a commodity standard and a very natural choice, I think, would be a gold standard. However, I think we need reform of the government itself. And number one, the government should stop meddling you know, it should stop giving guarantees such as mortgage guarantees or deposit insurance, and it should implement measures to prevent future bailouts and abolish GSEs. Number two, the government needs cutting back. We would suggest to the levels of the great Coolidge administration of the 1920s. Thank you. Thank you. We should also remember Calvin Coolidge's motto, the business of America is business. And if I can just... Um, make a gentle uh, jibe at our host and Cato, I think it would be very appropriate if they put a portrait of President Coolidge up in the Hall of Fame outside. And lastly, I think the government should tackle its major uh, budget imbalances to take the country back from the brink. Now, the longer-term fiscal prospects for both our countries are, of course, dire. But the good news is that most actuarial deficits are not so much hard and fast debt obligations as projections of what would happen if current policies persist. And there are obvious economies that can be made once the decisions are made to tackle them. So let me just end by returning to the main theme of our paper, the destruction of American capital by repeated asset price bubbles. What is the single most important reform that we need? End the Fed.
Thank you very much. Uh, Kevin, thank you for that uplifting uh, outlook. Um, <laughs> uh, by, by these gentlemen's standards, the Republicans' attempt to do away with the Fed's dual mandate seem rather tame. Now, we, we are bumping up right against the lunch hour. Um, and uh, so I will defer to the audience's questions. We probably have time for just about about three. Please keep your questions short. Back there, gentlemen, back there. It seems like everybody's talked quite a bit about the supply side of, of the monetary equation. And I'm wondering your thoughts on how the demand side plays out, particularly in an asset bubble versus CPI um, demonstrated inflation or, or deflation. So, um, I, whoever. I'm not sure I understand this question. I understand the question. Um, I'm not sure I understand your question. Uh, so could you could you just try again? Right. Yeah, I mean, the, the fundamental proposition of monetary theory is that the supply of money in nominal terms creates the demand in nominal terms, and usually that adjustment takes place by the purchasing power of money declining until it's all willingly held. In our current situation, we have the unusual situation of uh, banks holding trillion dollars plus in excess reserves. Why are they doing that? Uh, Partly they're being paid to do that by the payment of interest on reserves. Uh, and partly they're worried that if they do anything else, uh, they'll violate their capital uh, restrictions. Uh, but that is a, a form of demand for base money. The question is how stable a demand is it? And as the opportunity cost of investing in treasuries goes up, as recovery proceeds, we can expect that to happen. What will it take to keep those reserves from ballooning the money supply? Bernanke says he's prepared to raise the interest rate on reserves to hem in those reserves, but he hasn't said how high. Hey, gentleman over there. Hi, question for excuse me, question for Mr. Dowd. Um, you mentioned that the the link in Britain in the '30s was basically. War, and I'm wondering what, how close a link do you see between America's wars and its financial troubles? Well, I think there is some link. Um, I think a, a lot of America's capital is being invested abroad in wars. It's the same for Britain. Britain's doing the same thing. That's bound to detract from the performance of the of, of the American economy. I um, just wonder if the panelists would um, each comment on uh, uh, what it would take uh, uh, to move away from a discretionary policy with an implicit or even explicit inflation target to something, uh, one of these alternate regimes. I mean, what, what would it take and how realistic is it to think uh, we would abolish the Fed or move to some other commodity standard? I mean, I think it's a two-stage thing. First off, 
you need to make the decision to go back to a commodity standard, which presumably would be a gold standard, and we need to determine what type of gold standard we wanted to return to. And then once that was agreed, we'd have to have a program to phase out the Fed. So we go back to a gold standard that isn't manipulated in the way that Larry described and that would therefore actually work effectively. But, but would it take Armageddon, or do you no, think... No, no. Okay. Well, what it would take politically, is that yeah. your question? Yeah. Well, a majority of votes in Congress, I suppose. <laughs> uh, that's more likely than, uh, you know, convincing uh, the central bank to <laughs> turn in its uh, badges. Okay. <laughs> you know, I, I, as desirable as change would be, uh, as you probably could infer from my remarks, I also think it will be extremely difficult because of the uh, the, the conjecture that Friedman had about the, the control of all the information and publications, as, as Larry has, has documented, is essentially controlled by the organization that you're trying to change. So, and, and without public opinion behind a change, there, there are going to be no votes in Congress. So it's, it's ultimately mm-hmm. a, a public opinion Mm-hmm. Kind of thing. I mean, even to audit the Fed. I mean, it's shocking that we're <laughs> that that thing is being debated around and around. I, I guess, from my point of view, it's shocking <laughs> that the thing is on the agenda. But it is kind of amazing how little they've really accomplished in a, in a sense. I mean, the, the Fed has basically pulled all the teeth out of this auditing the Fed kind of idea, from my perspective, anyway. And there's. There's very little left except kind of a shell of something called auditing the Fed. So I think we really have to directly go to public opinion and and convince the public. And I think this is very difficult to do when you have the financial press, for example, reporting on the Fed. And where do they get the information about the the Fed? It's from the Fed. So so it's a very difficult uh, thing, I, I think, that we're facing. If I can add one thing to Carol, answer Carolyn's question, if we look across countries and ask when countries seriously reformed their monetary regimes and adopted a much harder uh, commitment, what prompted them to do it? And often it was Armageddon, right? It was the aftermath of a hyperinflation. But there are cases that, that give us hope that that's not necessary. I'm thinking, for example, the case of El Salvador, which dollarized without a hyperinflation to, to lock in uh, the moderate rate of inflation they had and okay. reduce it to the U.S. level. Well, as the only central banker on this panel, I think I have a somewhat different view. Uh, uh, I think uh, it hasn't been any any uh, major um, catastrophe that has uh, changed the, uh, the behavior of central banks over the last 15, 20 years, and there's been a tremendous change. I think what what has influenced central banks is that they've learned from from economic analysis, from Milton Friedman, who said that a central bank can control nominal values but can't control the unemployment rate. And this is this has underpinned the move to inflation targeting. Um, any future move, I think, among um, uh, central banks would be to try to to get some kind of handle on. Uh, besides doing inflation targeting, how to try and prevent asset price bubbles. But uh, in the earlier panel today, it was, it was noted that this is a very, very difficult thing to do. The European Central Bank 
tries to do it in a way because we look not only what's happening at the real economy, we look at happening, what's happening uh, at financial variables, monetary aggregates as um, predictors of possible uh, asset price inflation. But we're a long way from, from becoming scientific in that. Uh, the best that we know how to do right now is to is to have a um, to prevent inflation. We've done very very well on that. We look to the academic community to provide guidance on how we can how we can improve. But as someone who uh, is both a central banker and who follows uh, the academic literature quite closely, quite frankly, I don't see that we we have um, much uh, in terms of innovation coming from the academic community that could really be. Practical. It was mentioned about El Salvador and, uh, and dollarization. Um, Steve has done some uh, very, uh, very nice, important work on, on the role of currency boards. But this is, th these types of regimes are very helpful for smaller economies. But for the larger economies, such as the euro area, the Fed, uh, the Bank of England, the Bank of Japan, we haven't we haven't come uh, a long way outside of the contributions that people such as Friedman and Melser and others made in the late 1960s and 1970s, showing that there's no permanent trade-off between inflation and unemployment, showing that if we, if we try to target both, we wind up doing worse with both. And so, therefore, uh, the practical implication is that the best we can do is target inflation and let the unemployment rate go to a natural level, which we can influence through structural policies. But I really don't see... I really don't see anything else that's come out of academia. And we're very, very cognizant of academia. We have research departments. We, we have people come in and try and advise us from academia. But, um, you know, academics sometimes, uh, you know, make, make um, sexy arguments, but uh, they, they have to be able to work in practice. Okay, I think that's that's all we have time for. Uh, lunch is served uh, one flight up, and then the main lobby. If people will move. Thank you, John.